Ireland is an island next to the island of Great Britain in Europe. Ireland happens to be the second largest island of the British Isles, the third largest in Europe, and the 20th largest on Earth. Ireland is divided between the Republic of Ireland, also known as Plain Ireland, in the south, and Northern Ireland, which is part of the United Kingdom, in the north of the island. Gaelic Ireland had emerged by the 1st century AD. The island was then Christianized from the 5th century onwards. Following the 12th century Anglo-Norman invasion, England claimed sovereignty. Have you heard the term beyond the pale? Well, the pale was a strip of land centered on Dublin, and it became the base of English rule in Ireland. The Norman invasion of Ireland, beginning in 1169, brought much of Ireland briefly under the theoretical control of the Plantagenet kings of England. From the 13th century onwards, the Hiberno-Norman occupation in the rest of Ireland at first faltered and then waved. Across most of Ireland, the Normans increasingly assimilated into Irish culture after the year 1300. They made alliances with neighboring autonomous Gaelic lords. In the long periods when there was no large royal family in Ireland, the Norman lords, like their Gaelic neighbors in provinces, acted essentially as independent rulers in their own areas. Classic medieval stuff. English rule did not extend over the whole island until the 16th to 17th century that led to colonization from settlers from Britain. In the 1690s, a system of Protestant English rule was designed to materially disadvantage the Catholic majority and Protestant dissenters and was extended during the 18th century. And that takes us to 1800, where this story starts. Now, I want to break this episode on Ireland into bits and pieces. There are a lot of moving parts, so just high level. The Act of Union, the Potato Famine, Irish Nationalism, Partition, Independence of Ireland, the Civil War, the Troubles, and then the Good Friday Accord, the Downing Street Declaration. All of this stuff we're going to cover. So we're going to start with the Act of Union, 1800-1801. These were parallel acts of Parliament. So that included the Parliament of Great Britain and the Parliament of Ireland, which you created the United Kingdom of Great Britain and the Kingdom of Ireland. Previously, this, this was a personal union. So I'll talk about that in a minute. So it created the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. This act came to force on the 1st of Jan, 1801 and the merged Parliament of the United Kingdom had its first meeting on the 22nd of January, 1801. Now, before these acts, Ireland had been in what is known as a personal union with England, and that had been the case since 1541, meaning that the same monarch was monarch of two different countries, but there were two different countries. And that was when the Irish Parliament passed the Crown of Ireland Act back in 1542, proclaiming King Henry VIII of England to be also the King of Ireland. Now remember, Henry VIII was King of England, not Great Britain, because Scotland was not in the union with England at that time. Now, since the 12th century, the King of England had been the technical overlord of the Lordship of Ireland. Ireland was a papal possession. Both the kingdoms of Ireland and England later came into a personal union with that of Scotland upon the union of the crowns in 1603 when James of Scotland became James I of England. 
Okay. Now, the passage of the Act in the Irish Parliament was ultimately achieved with substantial majorities having failed on the first attempt in 1799. According to contemporary documents at the time and historical analysis, this was achieved through a considerable degree of bribery with funding provided by the British Secret Service and the awarding of peerages, palaces, and honours to secure votes. Thus, the Parliament in Ireland was abolished and replaced by a united Parliament in Westminster. A rebellion in Ireland, therefore, occurred during 1803, and that was an attempt by Irish Republicans to seize the seat of the British government in Ireland at Dublin Castle and trigger a nationwide insurrection. The rebels were organised under a reconstituted United Irish Dictatorate. Hopes of French aid, of a diversionary rising by radical militants in England, of Presbyterians in the Northeast rallying once more to the cause of Republic proved disappointing, didn't happen. The rising in Dublin ultimately failed, therefore, and after a series of street skirmishes, the rebels dispersed. Their principal leader, Robert Emmett, was executed. Others ran off into exile. Now, Ireland was largely passed over by the Industrial Revolution, partly because it lacked coal and iron, and also partly because of the impact of the sudden union with the substantially more superior economy of England. That saw Ireland as a source of agricultural produce and capital, somewhat turning the island more into a colony than an integral part of the United Kingdom. In the 40 years that followed the Union, successive British governments grappled with the problems of governing a country which had, as Benjamin Disraeli stated in 1844, a starving population, an absentee as aristocracy, an alien established Protestant church, and in addition, the weakest executive in the world. One historian even calculated that between 1801 and 1845, there had been 114 commissions and 61 special committees inquiring into the state of Ireland, and that without exception, their findings prophesied disaster. Ireland was on the verge of starvation, population rapidly increasing, three-quarters of the laborers unemployed, housing conditions appalling, and the standard of living unbelievably low. And these were politicians in Westminster. Now, let's move on to the Great Famine, or the Potato Famine as it was known, that lasted from 1845 to about 1851. Now first, some backgroundy stuff. During the 18th century, the, and I'm air quoting, middleman system for managing landed property was introduced. Rent collection was left in the hands of the landlord's agents or middlemen. This assured the landlord of a regular income and relieved them of direct responsibility while leaving tenants open to exploitation by these middlemen. Catholics, the majority of whom lived in conditions of poverty and insecurity, made up to about 80% of the population. At the top of the social pyramid was the ascendancy class, that being the English and Anglo-Irish families who owned most of the land and held more or less unchecked power over their tenants. Some of their estates were vast. For example, the Earl of Lucan owned more than 60,000 acres. Many of these absentee landlords lived in England. The rent revenue collected from impoverished tenants who were paid minimal wages to raise crops and livestock for export was mostly sent to England. 
1843, the British government considered that the land question in Ireland was the root or foundational cause of disaffection in the country. They therefore established a royal commission, chaired by the Earl of Devon, to inquire into the laws regarding the occupation of land. A Daniel O'Connell described this commission as perfectly one-sided, being composed of landlords with no tenant representation. In February 1845, Devon reported, and I'm quoting, It would be impossible adequately to describe the privatization which they, the Irish laborer and his family, habitually and silently endure. In many districts, their only food is the potato, their only beverage water. Their cabins are seldom a protection against the weather. A bed or a blanket is a rare luxury, and nearly all their pig and manure heap constitute their only property. End quotes. The ability of middlemen was measured by the rent income they could contrive to extract from the tenants. They were described in evidence before the commission as, and I'm air quoting, land sharks, bloodsuckers, and the most oppressive species of tyrant that ever lent assistance to the destruction of a country, end quote. These middlemen leased large areas of land from the landlords on long leases with fixed rents, which they sublet as they saw fit. They would split a holding into smaller and smaller parcels so they could increase the amount of rent they could obtain. Tenants could be evicted for reasons such as non-payment of rent, which was always the case, or a landlord's decision to raise sheep instead of grain crop. The potato was introduced to Ireland as a garden crop of the gentry. Potato was not popular at first. However, after an unusual promotion campaign that was supported by landowners and members of royalty who wanted the tenants to plant and eat the crop, it rose in popularity. By the late 17th century, it had become widespread as a supplementary rather than principal food. The main diet was still based on butter, milk, and grain products. With the inadvertent expansion of the economy between 1760 and 1815, due to a bunch of wars, including the Napoleonic Wars, which had increased demand for food in Britain, the tillage increased to such an extent that there was less and less land for small farmers, and the potato was chiefly adopted by the people because of its quick growth on a comparatively small space. The potato was used extensively as fodder crop for livestock immediately prior to the famine. So yes, the potato quickly became a staple across the board in Ireland. Prior to the arrival in Ireland of the disease that commonly became known as blight, a potato disease, only two main potato plant diseases had been discovered prior. One was called dry rot or taint, and the other was popularly known as curl. In 1851, the Census of Ireland commissioners recorded 24 failures of the potato crop going back to 1728 of varying severity. General crop failures through disease or frost were recorded in 1739, 1740, 1770, 1800, and 1807. In 1821 and 1822, the potato crop failed in Woodster and Connaught. In 1830 and 1831, Mayo, Donegal, and Galloway suffered likewise. In 1832, 1833, 1834, and 1836, dry rot and curl caused serious losses. And in 1835, the potato failed in Ulster. Widespread failures throughout Ireland occurred in 1836, 1837, 1839, 1844, and back in 1841. 
Now, according to Wooden Smith, the unreliability of the potato was therefore an accepted fact in Ireland. Now, these, these years, these dates I've mentioned are before the potato famine actually officially occurred. How and when the blight arrived in Europe is still uncertain. However, it almost certainly was not present prior to 1842 and probably arrived, we're assuming, around 1844. The origin of the pathogen has been traced to the Trocusa Valley in Mexico. It spread first in Northern America before arriving in Europe. Indeed, in 1844, Irish newspapers carried reports concerning a disease that for two odd years had attacked potato crop in America in 1843 and in 1844. Blight largely destroyed the potato crops in the eastern United States. Therefore, ships from Baltimore, Philadelphia, or New York City could have carried diseases or diseased potatoes from these areas to European ports. On the 16th of August, 1845, the Gardener's Chronicle and Horticultural Gazette reported a blight of unusual character on the Isle of Wight. A week later, on the 23rd of August, it reported that a fearful malady had broken out among the potato crop. In Belgium, the fields are said to be completely desolated. There is hardly a sound sample in Covent Garden Market. As for cure of this problem, there is none. On the 11th of September, the Freeman's Journal reported on the appearance of what is called cholera and potatoes in Ireland, especially in the north. On the 13th of September, the Gardener's Chronicle announced, we stop the press with every great regret to announce that the potato murin has unequivocally declared itself in Ireland. Now, despite that, the British government remained optimistic over the next few weeks as it received conflicting reports. Only when the crop was lifted, i.e. harvested, in October, did the scale of the destruction become apparent. Prime Minister Sir Robert Peel wrote to Sir James Graham in mid-October that he found the reports very alarming, but reminded him that there was, according to William Smith, always a tendency of exaggeration in the Irish news. Confronted by widespread crop failure in November 1845, the Prime Minister, Robert Peel, purchased £100,000 worth of maize and cornmeal secretly from the US. The government hoped that they would not stifle private enterprise and that their actions would not act as a disincentive to local relief efforts. Due to poor weather conditions, the first shipment did not arrive in Ireland until the beginning of Feb 1846. In October 1845, Peel moved to repeal the corn laws, i.e. tariffs on grain which kept the price of bread high. But the issue split his party and he had insufficient support from his own colleagues to push the measure through. He resigned the premiership in December, but the opposition was unable to form government and he was reappointed in March. Peel set up a program of public works in Ireland, but the famine situation worsened during 1846 and the repeal of the Corn Laws in that year did little to help the starving Irish. Crop loss in 1845 had been estimated at anywhere from one-third to as high as one-half of all cultivated acreage. The Mansion House Committee in Dublin, to which hundreds of letters were directed from all over Ireland, claimed on the 19th of November 1845 to have ascertained beyond the shadow of a doubt that considerably more than one-third of the entire potato crop has already been destroyed. 
1846, three quarters of the harvest was lost to blight. By December, a third of a million destitute people were employed in public works. According to Cormac O'Grader, the first attack of potato blight caused considerable hardship in rural Ireland. From the autumn of 1846, when the first deaths from starvation were recorded, seed potatoes were scarce in 1847. Few had been sown. So despite average yields, hunger continued. 1848 yields were only two-thirds of normal. Since over three million Irish people were totally dependent on potatoes for food, hunger and famine were thus inevitable. This great famine devastated Ireland, as in those years, Ireland's population fell by one-third. More than one million people died from starvation and disease, with an additional million people emigrating during the famine, mostly to the United States and Canada. In the century that followed, an economic depression caused by the famine resulted in a further million people emigrating. By the end of the decade, half of all immigration to the U.S. was from Ireland. The period of civil unrest that followed until the end of the 19th century is referred to as the Land War. Mass migration became deeply entrenched and the population continued to decline until the mid-20th century. The population has not returned to pre-famine levels, even to this day, July 2022. Okay, now we covered the Act of Union and the potato famine. Now moving on to a related issue as a result of all of this famine, Irish nationalism. The 19th and early 20th centuries saw the rise of modern Irish nationalism, primarily among the Roman Catholic population. The preeminent Irish political figure after the Union was Daniel O'Connell. O'Connell led a campaign for the repeal of the Act of Union, which failed. Later in the century, Charles Stuart Parnell and others campaigned for autonomy within the Union, or at least home rule. Unionists, especially those located in Ulster, were strongly opposed to home rule, which they thought would be dominated by Catholic interests. After several attempts to pass a Home Rule Bill through Parliament, it looked certain that one would finally pass in 1914. To prevent this from happening, the Ulster Volunteers were formed in 1913 under the leadership of one Edward Carson. Now remember, Ulster is in the north of Ireland, where there were more Protestants. Their formation was followed in 1914 by the establishment of the Irish Volunteers, whose aim was to ensure that the Home Rule Bill was passed. The Act was eventually passed, but with the temporary exclusion of the six counties of Ulster that would become Northern Ireland. Before it could be implemented, however, the Act was suspended for the duration of the First World War. The Irish volunteers split into two groups, the majority, approximately 175,000 in number, under John Redmond, took the name National Volunteers, and supported Irish involvement in the war. A minority, about 30,000, retained the Irish volunteers' name and opposed Ireland's involvement in the war. The Easter Rising, or Easter Rebellion, was launched by Irish Republicans against British rule in Ireland with the aim of establishing an independent Irish Republic while the United Kingdom was fighting the First World War. It was the most significant uprising in Ireland since the Rebellion of 1798, and the first armed conflict 
of the Irish Revolutionary Period. Sixteen of the Rising's leaders were executed in May 1916. The nature of the executions and subsequent political developments ultimately contributed to an increase in popular support for ultimate Irish independence. The pro-independence Republican Party, Sinn Féin, received overwhelming endorsement in the general election of 1918, and in 1919 proclaimed an Irish Republic, setting up its own parliament and government. Simultaneously, the volunteers, which became known as the Irish Republican Army, the IRA, launched a three-year guerrilla war which ended in a truce in July 1921, although, by the way, the violence continued until June 1922, but mostly in Northern Ireland. So this rise in Irish nationalism following the potato famine that happened after the Act of Union led to the partition of the two islands, the island in the north and the island in the south. The 1921 Anglo-Irish Treaty was an agreement between the government of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland and representatives of the Irish Republic that concluded the Irish War of Independence. It provided for the establishment of the Irish Free State within a year as a self-governing dominion within the community of nations known as the British Empire, a status that was the same as that for the Dominion of Canada. Crucially, it also provided Northern Ireland, which had been created by the Government of Ireland Act in 1920, an option to opt out of the Irish Free State, which the Parliament of Northern Ireland actually did. The agreement was signed in London on the 6th of December 1921 by representatives of the British government that included Prime Minister David Lloyd George, who was the head of the British delegate at the time, and by representatives of the Irish Republic, including Mike Collins and Arthur Griffith. The Irish Free State, as complemented by the treaty, came into existence when this constitution became law on the 6th of December 1922 by a royal proclamation. Although the treaty was narrowly approved, the split led to the Irish Civil War, which was won by the pro-treaty side. The Civil War was waged between two opposing groups, essentially the pro-treaty provisional government and the anti-treaty IRA. The forces of the provisional government, which became the Free State in December 1922, supported the treaty, while the anti-treaty opposition saw it as a betrayal of the Irish Republic. The Civil War was won by the pro-treaty Free State forces, who benefited from substantial quantities of weapons provided by the British government. Partition had happened by default when Ulster decided not to join the Irish Free State. Although Northern Ireland was largely spared the strife of the Civil War, in decades that followed partition, there were sporadic episodes of intercommunal violence. Nationalists, mainly Roman Catholic, wanted to unite Ireland as an independent republic, whereas Unionists, mainly Protestants, wanted Northern Ireland to remain in the United Kingdom. The Protestants and Catholic communities in Northern Ireland voted largely along sectarian lines meaning that the government of Northern Ireland was controlled by the Ulster Unionist Party. Over time, the minority Catholic community felt increasingly alienated with further disaffection, fueled by practices such as gerrymandering and discrimination in housing and employment. In the late 1960s, nationalist grievances were aired publicly in mass civil rights protests, which were confronted by loyalist counter-protests. The government's reaction to confrontations 
was seen to be one-sided and heavy-handed in favor of the Unionists. Very crucially at this point, the Northern Ireland government requested British Army to aid the police and protect the Irish nationalist population. In 1969, the paramilitary provisional IRA, which favored the creation of a united Ireland, emerged from a split in the Irish Republican Army and began a campaign against what it called the British occupation of the six counties. Other groups on both the Unionist side and the Nationalist side participated in violence in a period known as the Troubles. These Troubles were a polite way to say civil war or an ethno-nationalist conflict. The conflict was primarily political and nationalistic, fueled by historical events. In short, the Troubles were about the status of Northern Ireland, Unionists and Loyalists, who, for historical reasons, were mostly Ulster Protestants, wanted Northern Ireland to remain within the United Kingdom. Irish nationalists and Republicans, who were mostly Irish Catholics, wanted Northern Ireland to leave the United Kingdom and join a united Ireland. The conflict began during a campaign by the Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association to end discrimination against the Catholic nationalist minority by the Protestant Unionist government and local authorities. The government attempted to suppress the protesters. The police, the Royal Ulster Constabulary, or the RUC, were overwhelmingly Protestant and accused of sectarian and police brutality. The campaign was also violently opposed by loyalists who said it was a Republican front. Increasing tensions led to the August 1969 riots and the deployment of British troops in what became the British Army's longest operation. Peace walls were built in some areas to keep the two communities apart. Some Catholics initially welcomed the British Army as a more neutral force than the RUC, but soon came to see it as hostile and biased, particularly after Bloody Sunday in 1972. Bloody Sunday was a massacre on the 30th of Jan 1972 when British soldiers shot 26 unarmed civilians during a protest march in the Bogside area of Derry, or Londonderry, depending on what side of the fence you're on. The main participants in the Troubles were Republican parliamentaries such as the Provisional IRA and the Irish National Liberation Army. Loyalist parliamentaries such as the UVF, or the Ulster Volunteer Force, and the UDA, the Ulster Defence Association. British state security forces such as the Army and RUC and political activities were also part of the equation. The security forces of the Republic of Ireland played a tiny role. Republicans carried out guerrilla campaigns against British forces as well as a bombing campaign against infrastructure, commercial targets, and political persons and entities. As an aside, I lived in London during the later years of the Troubles, where we had got somewhat accustomed to IRA bomb warnings and acts of violence, including the Docklands bomb that I remember because I lived in London Docklands at the time. More than 3,500 people were killed in the conflict, of whom 52% were civilians, 32% were members of the British security forces, and 16% were members of parliamentary groups. Republican parliamentaries were responsible for some 60% of the deaths, loyalists about 30%, and the security forces about 10%. The Northern Ireland peace process led to the parliamentary ceasefires 
and talks between the main political parties that resulted in the Good Friday Agreement of 1998. This agreement restored self-government to Northern Ireland on the basis of power sharing, and it included acceptance of the principle of consent, commitment to civil and political rights, parity of esteem, police reform, paramilitary disarmament, and early release of parliamentary prisoners. In 1994, talks between the leaders of the two main Irish nationalist parties in Northern Ireland, John Hume of the SDLP, the Social Democratic and Labour Party, and Gerry Adams of Sinn Féin, continued. These talks led to a series of joint statements on how the violence might be brought to an end. The talks had been going on since the late 1980s and had secured the backing of the Irish government through an intermediary called Father Alec Reid. In November, it was revealed that the British government had also been in talks with the Provisional IRA, though they had long denied it. On Wednesday, 15th of December 1993, the Joint Declaration on Peace, more commonly known as the Downing Street Declaration, was issued by John Major, then Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, and Albert Reynolds, then Prime Minister of the Republic of Ireland, on behalf of the, of the British and Irish governments. The Downing Street Declaration, signed by Major and Reynolds, had a bunch of stuff in it and included statements like, the British government had no selfish, strategic or economic interest in Northern Ireland. This statement would lead eventually to, to the repeal of the Government of Ireland Act that was passed in 1920. Another one, the British government would uphold the right of the people of Northern Ireland to decide between the Union with Great Britain or a united Ireland. Another one, the people of the island of Ireland, North and South, had the exclusive right to solve the issues between North and South by mutual consent. It also said, the Irish government would try to address unionist fears of a united Ireland by amending the Irish constitution according to the principle of consent. This would lead eventually to the modification of Articles 2 and 3 of that constitution. A united Ireland could only be brought about by peaceful means. Peace must involve a permanent end to the use of or support for paramilitary violence. Despite rumblings from Ian Paisley, James Montague, and even Jerry Adams, the Good Friday Agreement was signed and done and dusted. Now, the Good Friday Agreement ultimately was a pair of agreements that was signed on the 10th of April. 1998, that ended most of the violence of the Troubles. The agreement created a number of institutions between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, and between the Republic of Ireland and the United Kingdom. The agreement was approved by voters across the island of Ireland in two referendums held on the 22nd of May 1998. The British-Irish Agreement came into force on the 2nd of December 1999. The DUP, i.e. the Democratic Unionist Party, was the only major political group in Northern Ireland to oppose the Good Friday Agreement. Thank you again for taking the time out to listen to this episode that began in the year 1800 and ended in 1999. All the best. Catch you all soon. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.